Welcome back to Between the Lines, everything your medical school didn't teach you about health equity. My name is Isabella Junta. I'm a second year medical student at SUNY Downstate. I'm Chanel Simmons, a fourth year medical student. We started this podcast as students in White Coats for Black Lives to hear the experience of marginalized communities that are often ignored in our medical education. We are inviting community organizers and those active in our community to discuss how structural racism and other injustices impact health and lead to disparate health outcomes. In this two-part episode titled The Crisis of Healthcare in Prison, we will be discussing the health effects of mass incarceration and the limitations on access to quality healthcare within and after release from prison. So Chanel, why do you think it's important that we talk about this? Why does it interest us as future medical providers? Well, my question is why not? Why not talk about healthcare for some of the most vulnerable people in our society? Policing and mass incarceration have profound adverse consequences for the health of Black people in communities. Not only does it impact the health of the person incarcerated, but also impacts the family entire communities as people are cycling in and out of the criminal justice system, police violence can harm mental health for entire communities through constant surveillance and constant threats of violence. What mass incarceration does is disenfranchise a large portion of the population so that they cannot contribute to their families or their communities' economic and social advancement. Another thing I think it's important to hear the experiences of people interacting with the healthcare system within correctional settings is because we need to be able to examine our role in contributing to oppression of that population. We need to understand that modern American medicine is rooted in scientific racism. Racialized conceptions of susceptibility to disease and pain persist to this day. A study published just in 2016 found that White medical students and residents held unfounded beliefs about intrinsic biological differences between Black people and white people. The majority believe that Black people have a higher tolerance for pain than white people. To me, that's straight out of a eugenics textbook. And back then, they believe Black people's skin was thicker than white people's skin and therefore had different responses to pain. We see these racial biases playing out in how those doctors in the study, as well as the system as a whole, provides inadequate treatment for Black and Brown patients. Acceptance of this inequitable treatment is historically rooted in and supported by the belief that Black people are intrinsically disease prone and not deserving of high quality care. So understanding the impact of mass incarceration helps us understand the health and the welfare of the community as a whole. The prison population is a continuous part of our community. We will encounter patients who have been in prison or have a family member in prison. I have people close to me who have been to prison and had serious health problems while in prison. I talked with one of my family members about this podcast and about healthcare in prison, and this was his response. Yo, I'm telling you, healthcare is second rate. Put that down first and foremost. It's like my understanding is that they give people that can't make it in the private sector. So they work in the, they work for the inmates where it don't matter what you do to them, you know. I had a stroke and I almost died. I was working out. And when I was working out, I kept feeling hot. And it was cold. 
think the weather was November or something. It was, and I kept saying that, man, I'm from my heart, man. And they said, man, well, why don't you, you, you lay down? Because I was not only was I hot, I was kind of like tired. So they said, man, you, you, you felt like be on all night long. You be reading all night. You need to lay down. You need to get some sleep, man. And my eye was blinking. I was kind of like, I was working out. And then I sat down and I, was looking, I started watching TV. The eye that was blinking, I couldn't see out of it no more. So I said, man, maybe I do need to lay down and go to sleep. And so when I was still watching TV, now the other eye is blinking. Like, what is going on? What the hell? And so, like, you know, I told the officer, I said, yo, listen. I said, I don't know what's wrong, but I can't see out of this eye. And so he said, what kind of drugs were you all taking last night? I said, listen, man, ain't no drugs involved in none of this. I can't see out of this eye. I'm screaming on them because they think everybody thinks drugs and everything. I mean, it's a lot of drugs in prison, but, hey, I wasn't doing nothing like that. I screamed on them like, yo, man, this is serious. I'm not... And trying to get out, trying to get out of, out, of, out of my cell. You know, some of these dudes, they try to get out of their field and run around and play. I'm not here to do that junk. So he said, well, listen, man, go to the infirmary. So I go, he gave me a pass and I go to the infirmary. Because, see, I'm in the maximum security. And you have to be escorted everywhere you go. You can't be walking around by yourself. You have to be escorted by the police everywhere. So I went there and the doctor was checking me out and whatnot. I'll never forget it was a young doctor. He was young, he had dread. And so I'm, I'm sitting here for about about half an hour or so, and this nurse came up to me. She said, man, take your pass and go back to your cell and come back tomorrow. So I just sat there in the chair for a minute. And when a doctor came in, I said, excuse me, doctor, I'm not trying to tell you how you can do your job or nothing, but I've been sitting there for over an hour. I can't, I'm blind in one eye. I can't just see. I said, oh. and then your nurse, she told me, go back to my cell. And he's got a pass right there. He said, where? Where's the pass? Where's the pass? Who told you to go back to yourself? I said, yeah, nurse told me to go back to yourself. He grabbed that pass, you know, and crumbled it up and he put it in his pocket. He said, listen, I don't know what's wrong. I'm going to send you to the outside hospital. I put my clothes on and one night and I went to the and white up in White Plains because I was in prison and oscillated. I went to the prison there, and I went to the infirmary. Like I said, it was some kind of young, he was a young doctor with dreads, so I forget. And he put something in my eye. He said, it's going to sting a little bit. He said, but you're going to be all right. So he put that in my eye, and I said, oh, he started burning. I said, oh. Within seconds, I was like, you see, oh, shoot. So now, he said, well, I'm going to tell you. He said, I said, can I go back to my cell? He said, no, nah, man. He said, I'm not sending you to your cell. He said, your family will never fool me. He said, you just had a mild stroke. He said, the reason why you couldn't see me is because the blood that's to you for your sight and your eye, it was getting clogged. You was blinking, and, and it was by being clogged, it wasn't getting the blood, and that's why you couldn't see. And he said, then the clog for the brain to go to your other eye was clogging up. That's why you couldn't see then. He said, had you went to sleep, that vein would have probably burst inside your head and blinded you on your whole left side. He said, the good thing you didn't go to sleep. He said, because you had a stroke. No, he said, the good thing he was persistent on telling the guard, listen, I'm not using any drugs or anything. Send me to the doctor. Something's wrong with me. So I was really shocked hearing that, just hearing how he was dismissed by the guard and by even the nurses um, when he knew something was wrong and he was complaining of loss of vision. And I actually just learned in my class about eye strokes and mini strokes both of which could present with loss of vision and both of which are really serious complaints that require 
very timely care. It's very time sensitive when you treat these conditions. And the big takeaways from those lessons were that one, someone complaining of loss of vision might have blockage to one of the vessels in their eyes that can lead to permanent vision loss in that eye. And that if someone's having a mini stroke or a transient ischemic attack, it's really important to do a full evaluation and start treatment because the risk of having a stroke after that are very high. Yeah, it, the, the percentage goes up exponentially. Yeah, like you said, what my family member experienced in prison was a transient ischemic attack. It's caused by many of the same chronic health conditions that are highly prevalent in prisons, such as hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. He also admitted to me he struggled with chronic hypertension and uncontrolled hypertension can cause a massive hemorrhage and he could have not only lost his sight, but he could have died. Just hearing how he was mistreated like that, I it really makes me think of something we read about the Estelle v. Gamble case in 1976, which established sort of this minimum standard of care that needs to be given to prisoners. And it states that deliberate indifference to serious medical needs of prisoners was unconstitutional since it violates the Eighth Amendment, which is the amendment that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And hearing his story, it makes me think, do we actually maintain that standard? It seemed like deliberate indifference to me. I saw that that Supreme Court case is the landmark case that helped expose the appalling and substandard state of prison health care. During that time, there were also several federal lawsuits filed by people in prison claiming that their health concerns went unaddressed because they were receiving treatment from unqualified health care providers. And the correctional officers were regularly preventing inmates from attending sick calls. These cases also revealed an unjustified lack of mental health services in a large population of people with mental health illnesses. What really helped push legislation to recognize healthcare as a right for people in prisons is the collective voice and power of those incarcerated individuals. They expose a deeply rooted injustice in our healthcare system, which we have to continue to illuminate. Prior to Estelle versus Gamble, there was the Atticus uprising that happened in Attica Correctional Facility in Buffalo, New York in 1971. Thousands of in inmates took control of the prison by outnumbering and overpowering prison guards and workers and holding them hostage for four days. The reason for that rebellion stemmed from the inmates' frustration with poor living conditions and inhumane treatment. These acts of resistance, whether it's happening in courts or within prisons, is still happening today. The demands are pretty much the same. We are still fighting for basic human rights for people in prison where people of color are overrepresented and what that basically means to me is that we are still fighting for the humanity of Black and brown people in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like hearing about those uprisings and hearing stories more recently, I feel like it's, it's still definitely a crisis and it's not being addressed. I think another reason we need to be thinking about mass incarceration as future medical providers is that we know that growing up with a family member in prison is related to having poor health outcomes as an adult. The CDC Kaiser ACE study is a very famous study that showed how adverse childhood experiences, things like abuse, neglect, and household challenges, which include having a family member in prison, all lead to negative adult health outcomes, which range from infectious diseases to traumatic brain injuries to cancer even. 
And it was also found that racial minorities were far more likely to have four or more types of these adverse childhood experiences, and that these factors cause what's known as toxic stress. So toxic stress from living in poverty, living in a racially segregated neighborhood, or experiencing structural racism can actually alter brain development and cause difficulty in things like maintaining healthy relationships and finding a job, and can even increase the risk of being incarcerated. So this creates really this cradle to prison pipeline within this cycle of stress and intergenerational trauma. In this way, race, poverty, mass incarceration, and poor health are really inextricably linked and all influence each other. It was also shown that preventing or addressing certain adverse childhood experiences can actually improve health. So it stands to reason that addressing mass incarceration then can improve public health. Yeah, certainly. What the ACE study also unveiled to me is the impact of epigenetics and pregnancy, the role of stress on gene expression and the impact of racial injustice on health. Black maternal fetal mortality is high because of the even larger number of high-risk pregnancies. High-risk pregnancies are highly influenced by environmental stress, poor diet, poor health, and the experience of racism. When those high-risk pregnancies come to term, the infant in the next generation is suffering the health consequences of racism and injustice. Congenital disorders, developmental delays, and mental illnesses are also outcomes of complicated pregnancies that keep people at a disadvantage in life. Without proper management, these health problems can lead someone to prison. And like you said, Isabella, it creates a cradle-to-prison pipeline. We also have to realize that there is a direct legacy of redlining in health and well-being. Redlining was a practice that helped further segregate this country. This policy expanded home ownership opportunities to white Americans, but allowed insurance companies to deny mortgages in and near predominantly black neighborhoods. Mortgage companies physically outlined those neighborhoods on the map with red lines. The health disparities we see today are the direct result of de facto segregation. Preterm birth, cancer, tuberculosis, depression, and other mental health issues occur at higher rates among residents of these once redlined areas. There's a higher level of air pollution in these areas, which contributes to asthma and low birth weights in Black communities. And to me, all of this is not a coincidence. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a lot of times things like segregation of neighborhoods or poverty or health disparities are presented as kind of just these facts that you need to know that, okay, Black people might be more prone to certain health diseases. But like you said, it's not a coincidence. It is the result of structural racism and all of these institutions kind of interacting to create this situation. I'd like to talk a little bit about why health outcomes are so poor in prison right now, starting with who is providing that care. So according to a 2018 report by Pew Charitable Trusts, more than half of the states in the U.S. use private companies to provide at least some health care in prison, and a significant portion of those are for-profit companies. Since these companies are often paid in flat rate per day or per individual um, reimbursements, there is a financial incentive to limiting healthcare costs, which would then increase their profits. In an ideal setting, this would mean avoiding things like unnecessary procedures and also prioritizing preventive care. But in a prison where individuals have no choice in their care and can't take themselves to an emergency room if they feel like something is seriously wrong, 
This instead leads to just neglecting prisoners' medical needs and refusing to transfer them to outside hospitals to contain costs. And in fact, a Reuters review of 500 jails from 2016 to 2018 found that those using one of the top five private healthcare contractors had higher death rates than those facilities where healthcare was run by government agencies. So you, so you can see kind of this um, profit-driven private healthcare leading to terrible outcomes. Yeah, definitely. I think the failures of the system were clearly exemplified in the death of Bradley Ballard. Until 2015, healthcare at Rikers Island was handled by a company called Horizon, which provides healthcare in prisons throughout the country. In September of 2013, Bradley Ballard, who lived with diabetes and schizophrenia, died in Rikers Island after spending six days in solitary confinement. Medical personnel and guards visited his cell over 50 times in those six days without offering him assistance. He was found lying naked in his own waist. He had mutilated his genitals and he died hours later of sepsis and diabetic ketoacidosis. The city paid $6 million in a settlement, but Corizon contributed none of the funds due to a stipulation in their contract that stated the city would cover all malpractice costs. So basically they were profiting off of delivering inadequate and frankly negligent healthcare without any financial liability. The low quality care and lack of oversight, including an apparent lack of any form of background checks for people employed by Corizon, led the city to refuse to renew the contract with Corizon and transfer care to New York City Health and Hospitals. I think that story of Bradley Ballard and also just the history that we've been speaking about really emphasizes the inadequate and often inhumane, honestly, treatment of people in prison, as do our conversations with both Jarrell Daniels and Jose Saldana. Jarrell and Jose represent two different generations and had very different experiences, but both experienced limitations when trying to access healthcare in prison and share that experience with us. Let's listen now to your conversation with Jarrell Daniels, who is a prison reform activist, mentor to youth emerging from Rikers and juvenile detention and research assistant at the Center for Justice at the University of Columbia. Hello, Jarrell. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. When I looked you up, I was inspired by all the work you do and what you've been through. I listened to your TED talk, very inspiring. In everything I read, you were commonly described as a strong advocate for your community, dedicated to empowering youth. Could you tell me more about some of the work you do and what led you to start working with youth and on criminal justice reform? I mean, I guess you, you kind of hit it right on the head. The, the tokenism that I receive and the work that I do is the reason why I do what I do for other young people. I mean, I came home after serving a six-year sentence beginning at the age of 18, and I was given an opportunity to work with prosecutors while in prison to draft policies for the agency and the policies were passed. But I, I asked myself, why are we waiting for people to have the mark of a felony conviction before we give them an opportunity to be a part of meaningful change in their society? Uh, so that led me to develop the Justice Ambassadors. But what I was also thinking about in structuring the program was I was the only person who was given an internship at Columbia University. I was the only person who was given a, additional speaking opportunities and who seemed to be supported more than the rest of the students in the program. And it just wasn't fair. 
And I'm one of those people that live by the virtue to whom much is given, much is required. So the more opportunities that came my way, the more I went out of my way to make sure I extended them to young people coming up behind me. And I wanted to focus on young people because they're the ones who are more than likely, statistically speaking, to commit the most serious and violent offenses, which relates to my own experiences and what led to my incarceration. So I wanted to do something for young people who are on the verge of committing the most serious and violent offenses and also who needed the most support. Uh, so the Justice Ambassadors program was the brainchild of that idea. And um, what we do is we don't limit it to just justice-involved youth or youth who are on the verge of serious justice involvement. It's also open to high school students who are 18 and over or college students. Um, but we try to balance it between half at-risk and half traditional high school students or people who are on the college pathway, I would say. And yeah, I guess we've we've just completed the fourth cohort. So yeah, that's pretty much what I do. The, the goal of the program is similar to the program I was a part of in, in Queensborough Correctional Facility, where we recruit city agency representatives from different government spaces to sit in the educational space over an eight-week period alongside the youth so that the young people's ideas can inform policy recommendations for multiple city agencies simultaneously. And then for the graduation ceremony is basically structured as a certificate conferral slash policy presentation. And we invite the heads of those agencies to come in, listen to the proposals be presented and then uh, do some follow-up to make sure which ones have the most resources or backing to be implemented. As you know, I'm a medical student. My colleagues and I wanted to have the discussion to learn more about healthcare and correctional settings. I think it's very important because many of the patients we encounter have been incarcerated or have close family members who have been incarcerated. And medical school doesn't teach us how to confront those real world problems our patients face. In your TED Talk, you talk about your experience having spent six years in, in prison. You just told us a little bit about it now. What were some of your experiences with seeking health care in prison? Are there any routine health visits or preventative screening tests or dental work you're required to receive? Before I answer that question, I do want to preface the conversation by stating that my, my knowledge in this area of health care in prisons is limited, not, not necessarily because of my my time, but the, I would say the length of time that I did, I wasn't, I, I kind of went into prison relatively young, so my health was fairly in good standing, and it didn't really um, decay while my, while I was incarcerated. I, I would just recommend for the, the information gathering process. Going into the prison system, there's no real screening process. They don't do checkups until you actually transfer the state prison from the county jail. So Rikers Island is a detainment facility. Most people always use it interchangeably, like it's a prison. It's just a detainment institution. Um, you don't receive any checkups there, but you don't actually get like standard checkups until you transfer to state prison. Um, and the checkups happen um, once a year, but it's not, they're not going to call you for a checkup. You have to put in a request um, and then they'll look at your medical records to see if you had a, a checkup done that year. And I got my friend, my friend Dominique here with me. He was actually one of the people who was arrested with me. I've experienced a bunch of dental problems in prison where my tooth would be like a little bit messed up and I'd be like, um, can y'all just fix it? And they just like, nah, we're gonna pull it out. So it was times where I couldn't actually go to the dentist because y'all just gonna pull my teeth. Y'all not gonna help me or support it at all, so. I've heard the same thing as far as the dental work because a friend of mine that I know who was in prison, he went to get dental work and like he was having these toothaches and he was just basically like, you know, just take all my teeth out. And they actually took all his teeth out. I'm just like, so that kind of just proves that this is just almost experimentation 
you talked about being in a juvenile correctional facility at some point. Did you ever have to seek health care in those places? I was in juvenile for not long enough to receive health care. It was less than, less than a month. But that was that was prior to my adult incarceration. So I, I was on Rikers Island at 18 and then transferred to state prison when I received my sentence. Could you talk about some of the ethical issues you've witnessed in regards to health care? Not just your experience with health care, but why do you think the quality of care is so poor in jails and prisons? So from what I've heard, like they usually hire staff who have had like other medical challenges who weren't, I guess, fit to work in physical hospital settings or who were terminated for whatever the reasons may be, and then they're hired as staff to work in, inside of the correctional institutions. I mean, my personal experience, like I've had nurses who couldn't draw blood, who had to keep on sticking you because they just, they were just basically practicing on the population. So, you know, you have those kind of experiences. I was fortunate enough, I didn't have to go through any physical procedures, God forbid, but I've heard like getting just something as simple as a tooth extraction is something that, you know, you have to keep coming back just because they don't know how to do a simple tooth extraction. You know, these kind of like preventative things and checkups are probably a little more for, you know, people who have illnesses, chronic illnesses. And even for women, sometimes when they're pregnant, you know, having prenatal care, that's something that, you know, is controversial. And I don't know if, you know, there's a lot of care being given to those women. So there was this company um, called Horizon and it oversaw medical care in Rikers Island. That company was ultimately a scandal because it hired doctors and health workers with questionable backgrounds and criminal records and things like that. Also, some of the actions of those employees contributed to inmate deaths. Do you think it matters if healthcare is run by the state or run by private companies? I think it does matter. I think so. Technically, once you transfer to state prison, you become state property. So you're actually, your citizenship is where status is reduced. Like your ownership is that facility. And once you're transferred, that prison owns you. They like physically own you, your body, your space. They make you work for the minimum, you know, 60 cents an hour. All of this, again, goes back to the 13th Amendment, which is another conversation. But I think that if I'm going to be state property, my health care should be underneath state guidelines, not underneath private companies. I guess the liability for a private company is different from the state. Um, And I think that once that liability, that health liability is turned over to private people, then the state can say, you know what, it's not in my hands no more. The, The suit doesn't come against me when we file it. So I think that, you know, it's helpful to have it as a part of the state. Just to go back to the broader question, I think that you know, healthcare and the prison system is you got to look at it from two ways. So yes, there, there's malpractice happening. There's neglect, there's mistreatment happening. Most of the nurses and the staff inside of the, the infirmary is white and most of the prison population is black. So there's already a, a boundary there. But also like you have people who go and sign up for the infirmary just because they don't want to go to programming. You have people who sign up for the infirmary because they might like the way a nurse looks. And this is the only type of women contact that they may have for the next week or the next month or the next year. So it's, it's two sides of it. So the staff come in with their attitude because they're dealing with this side of the population that's coming for this and then this side of the population who actually has a physical need that needs to be met. I know injuries frequently occur in prisons. In your experience, what would it look like for a person who was incarcerated to receive care for acute health concerns, say after getting into a fight? Could you tell me what would that look like in the best case scenario as well as the worst case scenario? 
in the best case scenario, so whenever a fight happens, if the fight is, I guess, goes undocumented where officer doesn't see the fight happen, then like the people will patch up themselves. If they have a sign of an injury, then there's going to be an infraction, a ticket given to them where disciplinary actions could come in and um, they'll be removed from the housing unit. If the fight happens and the officer does see it, the response is that automatically that person is taken to the infirmary. Both people are taken to the infirmary to check for injuries. Like automatically that's protocol. Um, however, all facilities may not follow that protocol, but the facilities that I was in automatically, like they took everyone to the infirmary to check for any wounds and whatever. And then um, they made a decision. If it was a physical fight, they just usually split the two people up out of the housing unit. They won't move them out the facility. If it's a, if one of the people, you know, say that they, don't feel safe anymore, then they'll transfer one out the facility and then other person to stay, or they may transfer both out the facility. It's really up to the facility's discretion at that point. Yeah, I talked to someone else I know about the fights and injuries. And that person said, you know, if someone gets into a fight and sustains a stab or a puncture wound, going to the infirmary and getting treatment is not their first option. Because when they go, the officers and the medical staff want to know who cut them. And they're more concerned about finding the perpetrators. And, you know, and there's this culture where being a snitch is dangerous, you know. And I also think you got to consider that there's officers who assault the people who are incarcerated. So that's what I was more concerned about during my time in prison. I wasn't really worried about like being stabbed or being slashed or having a physical fight. I was more so worried about like losing my life to the hands of an officer and then having it swept under the rug. Like I was in a prison where two people died at the hands of the, the officers and like they assaulted them all the way until they beat them to death. But I know that if the, if the injury is sustained by an officer, they'll go to the fullest extent to make sure that that injury is, is not reported. They may take you to the infirmary, they may not. And if they do take you to the infirmary, you can 100% believe that all of the medical staff are gonna sign off saying that it's something that didn't involve an officer. I just, I wanna talk a little bit about compassion release. And I know you don't have that much experience, but I think we can talk about something regarding medical decarceration, which is an effort to release people who are aging, dying, and suffering from terminal illnesses. I know the process for qualifying for compassionate release is complicated. The statistics on how many actually receive compassionate release are hard to find. Persons with medical conditions, age, time served, determine eligibility, but exclusion criteria is extensive. And I know those serving longer sentences, the board repeatedly denies people parole based on the nature of the person's crime. How do these decarceration efforts benefit the aging and dying population in prison? Yeah, well, I'll first say that people don't get compassionate release because more than likely the people who need it are the ones who got serious charges and were sentenced to 25 to life, mm -hmm. in life, um, and the ones who are constantly being hit at the parole board. Uh, but I, I support the, the decarceration efforts of, of aging prison, people in prison because the state doesn't benefit from keeping people incarcerated is actually a bigger liability. Um, and it's a, it costs more. Um, they, they have to pay for transportation because they can be housed in a facility that's way up north and um, closer to Canada, closer to the Canadian border, like where I was and where my friend Dominique was. Um, and facilities up there, they don't have proper medical care. So if someone is, is, is facing a serious ailment, they'll have to pay for your transportation down, back down to Albany, which is about four or five hours away have to have an officer paid overtime to stay with you over the, over the nights or however long it takes 
these are the kind of things that you just got to consider when you're thinking about keeping an, an elderly person in prison. Since you've been fortunate not to have that experience and you are here to tell the story, could you tell me what it was like the day you got out of prison? What services did you immediately seek out and what was provided to you? I planned for my release like years in advance. So like my, I was walked through the process over the prison phone with my mother about, you know, coming home, renewing my health insurance, uh, getting a dentist checkup, a physical checkup from the doctor, opening, you know, my bank account, so on and so forth. And I wrote down my step-by-step plan. Um, the prison, only thing that they really do for you is give you Medicaid. That Medicaid is only active for the first year that you're home. They send stuff mostly through email, um, but people come home, they might be they might cycle through different phones. They might cycle through different emails. Just so, you know, Medicaid might have old and outdated information that they're trying to contact to let you know that your policy is about to expire. So for me, I, I kind of, my, my transition was just, it was smoother just because I got prepared in advance and I was, you know, uh, lucky enough to gain employment. There's more employment opportunities for a person in their 20s than a person in their 30s or 40s or 50s. The same is true for the reentry programs and services. A lot of them, say, you know, up to 24, up to 25. Could you just tell, what are your some of your recommendations for physicians caring for someone who was formerly incarcerated? My recommendation is for any physician to do a full CAT scan, MRI, um, and a full cardiovascular and muscular check, just because, like, we go years without knowing what's happening to our body. And um, and even if we have small pains, like, we'll work through the pain, and we won't know until it's something major. Uh, so I recommend just, you know, doing those full diagnostics uh, free of charge. If it, if it could be free of charge. Oh, I had um, hemorrhoids and I wasn't aware that it was hemorrhoids, but I, I had the problem like um, on and off bleeding while I was in prison. The only thing that they did was they gave me a stool sample kit while I was in prison and told me to, you know, collect stool samples. And all they did was tested for cancer. Um, and then it continued on and on, on and off until I was released. And then when I came home, my physician actually said I had uh, hemorrhoids and then gave me the proper, you know, um, prescriptions and stuff. How do you suggest physicians ask about a history of incarceration? How should physicians go about building trust with someone who was formerly incarcerated? Um, it depends on like communication skills between, um, like communication skills between the physician. Um, like some people are less talkative, some people are more talkative if they're able to gauge a conversation. Um, my, my physician is a black woman, so I felt comfortable letting her know my experience. And I, I really didn't, excuse me, I didn't really give a F if she, if she judged me or not. I, I came and told her on the first visit, like, miss, I just did six years in prison. I need you to check every part of my body and make sure it's functioning the way that I needed to. Is there any specific policies or issues or actions in New York's um, city or state that healthcare workers should be aware of? Most of them will fall under the, the RAPS, RAPS campaigning, uh, releasing aging people from prison. Their legislative acts fall in line with what the healthcare workers sh- should be considering. Also, a new report that was published on um, prison policy organization, they produce uh, updated studies every couple of months on the prison crisis in America. And their most recent one was on the impact of COVID in prison. I think that the medical training procedure all the qualifications to be a medical practitioner inside of a correctional institution needs to be changed. Yeah, thank you. The next um, New York Center, Jarrell Daniels, it was a pleasure talking with you. Uh, thank you, Chanel. Thank you all. 
Wow, thanks so much for that conversation, Chanel. One of the things that struck me from your conversation with Jarrell was his suggestion to do this full body MRI and CT on all patients who have been incarcerated. And I think that really reflects how concerned he was about his medical condition after having his medical complaints ignored for so long and after not having agency over his own body for so long. So I think for physicians, whether or not you de you decide to do something like imaging, I think it's really important that we take extra care in being thorough in our history taking and physical exam of formerly incarcerated individuals who probably just want to have some control over their own health and their own bodies again, and do have very valid concerns given what we know about the standard of care in prison. You're so right, Isabella. Not only do incarcerated people lose agency of their bodies, but also integrity over their lives. Another point Jarrell made that I thought was impactful was the fact that he was more worried about dying at the hands of police than getting assaulted by other inmates or dying from an illness. We can't forget police violence contributes directly to the current public health crisis. Use of police force kills hundreds and injures thousands of people of color every year. Even though we don't know what really happens behind prison walls, society very much feels its impact. Absolutely. And one thing I think is important to realize is that Jarrell, fortunately, was a healthy young man while he was in prison. He didn't really have any serious, chronic, or debilitating diseases. The health problem that he did have, he had to ignore. Of course, he mentioned his hemorrhoids, but it wasn't considered serious since they'd ruled out cancer with a very low sensitivity test, the fecal occult blood test. But what if he did have cancer? And what if he did have a serious health condition? A lot of people serving longer sentences who are aging in prison deal with chronic and terminal illness, things like cancer. Next episode, we're going to speak with Jose Saldana to give us a little insight on that. He had a much longer experience in prisons and we'll speak a little bit about what it's like for the aging population in prison. 